everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Today I have a kind of a special episode. I brought together two, uh, two people that I've interviewed in the past. One is Dr. Kenneth James. He is a Jungian psychoanalyst out of Chicago. And the other is Dr. Eric Monsager. He is a certified Adlerian uh, outside of within Switzerland. So we're all in different time zones. We're all coming together and we're going to try to present to you guys some of the similarities and differences between uh, Adler and Jung, the way that they conceptualize cases. Um, we're going to discuss some trainings and all kinds of good stuff. So we're going to jump in. Well, first, thank both of you for joining me here today and taking time out to do this. Thank you. So we're going to jump in with, um, I'm going to read kind of a, a mock case uh, example. And then, Dr. James, I would like to hear your kind of thoughts. What stands out to you? Where do you think you might see yourself going uh, with this client in therapy? Okay. Okay, so John is a 35-year-old married white male who is asking for your help. For the last few years, he has been feeling down and depressed. He is not feeling suicidal, although he says he wouldn't mind if he were to get in an accident or get sick and die. He says he was raised as a Catholic, but as of four years ago, no longer practices religion and no longer knows whether or not he believes in God. John mentions he has vivid dreams, including a recurring dream of being buried alive. He is currently out of work after being laid off six months ago from a job he didn't really enjoy anyways. His goals are to understand his depression to get a place in his life where he feels some enjoyment again and to find a job. Okay. So here's a young man who is suffering on all fronts, uh, except perhaps his marriage. Um, he has lost his faith. He is generally feeling depressed. Although he has dreams, the, the recurring dream is of being buried alive. Um, not sure if he believes in God. And he got laid off from work. So if we look at love and work, we will hope, perhaps, and I would certainly explore the quality of his relationship to his wife. Um, but beyond that, there doesn't seem to be much for this, for this young man. Mm. to be holding on to the relieving of depression is uh, a place like, where i think we would look at this from a jungian perspective in a slightly different way perhaps than a medical model um because when when i see depression first of all that seems like a realistic response to what life has brought him up to this point and we look at depression as a sinking or a falling away of psychic energy into the deep parts of the unconscious. And that usually presages a reformation at a very deep level of the personhood, eventually to reemerge. That's really interesting in theory. It's not going to help this man in the present moment. So I would want to begin with a dream and i also would want to ask more and more about spirituality does he feel the loss of connection to his religion 
or a sense that he doesn't know if he believes in God, does he feel that as a loss? Because if we could begin to unpack what that recurrent dream is suggesting, and if we can begin to find where the spiritual is still alive for him, I think that there may be a way out of this very deep, depressive place. Um, I would, with the dream, I would move very, very uh, slowly to get as many details as possible about what does he notice about being buried alive? Is his dream consciousness in some sort of container, like a coffin? Is he observing this from outside of it, but also knowing that he's in there? Uh, and I would really push for details. How did he get there? Is he comfortable? Can he breathe? I would amplify as much as possible um, all of the details that he could bring up from the manifest content of the dream. Um, and in the back of my mind, I would be wondering what has been buried. And the hopeful part of that really horrid image is buried alive. So if we can find a way to get under the, the earth, under the humus, the humiliation, perhaps, same root, of having lost his job, perhaps we can open that container where he's buried and at least allow for some inspiration, for some air to come in to, to help him out. Um, I definitely would also want to know why did he stop practicing his religion and what were the factors that led to that, including how is this religion related to your family of origin? How is this religion related to the religion your wife practices? Um, we don't know anything about children. I would probably ask about that. Um, and there's a very passive death wish. Hmm. If I can get into an accident or get sick and die. So the ego isn't actively seeking to end his life, but neither is the ego connecting to any kind of core of um, energy that would move him out. So that, that part is at least definitely a concern. Um, I would also want to know what he's doing in terms of looking for employment. Hmm. Is he not doing anything? Is he trying and not being successful? Uh, so I'd want many more details um, about that. Don't think there's anything else that I have down here. Um, I also want to know why, since it was the last few years, why he's seeking help right now. Hmm. Was it, was it um, the loss of the job six months ago? Is it something in the marriage? So that would be where I would go. Okay. Initially. Thank you. So you'd start with the dream. I would. And really try to unpack and, un and uncover that. And, and you conceptualize this very much as uh, a spiritual problem. And, or maybe like if, if you can get some type of a spiritual sense back, whatever that might look like, mm -hmm. that might help him feel, might help him catch a breath of air or not feel buried alive anymore. Well, as, and you know, we're not supposed to have any memory um, uh, or desire, but 
my desire would be open up wherever he's buried and allow for inspiration again. Mm. It wouldn't matter at this point if it has a religious label, Uh but he is that buried alive. I'm not, I'm not inspiring anymore. Uh I'm very limited in terms of the air. Uh, We just look at it in terms of physics. So he's suffering from a lack of soon an asphyxiation, which is Mm. truly a lack of inspiration. Okay. So that the, the dream seems to be telling us where to go. Okay. In that regard. All right. Thank you. Yeah, Dr. Monthager. Alrighty. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate yeah. that. And you'll see a, a few parallels in that, which we can maybe talk about later. But um, let me go through this. I pretty much broke it down by the seven statements we were provided. And then I want to share with you somewhat of a Socratic questioning process of what is what might be going on here. Some might be questions to him. Others, all of it is kind of a pondering. What can I find here? Because I'm going to be looking for his movement, his psychic movement, from a minus place, a feeling of inferiority, into one of uh, mastering that that problem. Now. The inferiority feeling might be might be obvious or might not be because of the these terrible circumstances he's going through right now. But uh, and that would this will give us, Adler would say, exogenously from the outside, it gives us a look at what's happening here. But the pattern will be consistent, whether it's this issue or other issues he's faced in his life. So in that regard, my intake would include learning a bit about his family of origin, his sibling order, his parental alliances, his school involvement in the past, and his early recollections, generally speaking. Family of origin will give me a hint about his own gender guide and family values. The sibling order, what his expectations are in the world. Is he the oldest or the youngest or a middle child or an only? Parental alliances. Uh, will give him what he saw in his mom and dad, is what I'm saying, or the parents that he had. What does he expect from adult responsibilities? Um, the school involvement, e- even uh, in a minor way, gives us what he expects to happen in unexpected situations, especially first days of school and the like. And what are the ongoing challenges he faces to meeting things that he doesn't understand? I think that's what the school process would be. And the early recollections are uh, Adlerian's gold, golden moment uh, to reveal the psychological movement and his sources of discouragement, which I guess are many at this point. Okay. So the first point, John is 35, married white, seeking my help. Now, I just want to say to you, uh, because I know Ken addresses this in a, a slightly different way, which we might get to, the difference between psychoanalysis psychotherapy, counseling, things like that. But if he if he came to us via our site, we, we emphasize in our website a depth approach. Adlerians tend to be cognitive. The depth Adlerians go into the psychoanalytic mode. And so he it, it would bode well that he wants to go a little deeper. Maybe he's ready to go more than just get me a job or something like that. For the last few years, he's been feeling down and depressed. So I'm going to be looking 
what he means by down and depressed. Very often, those can be differentiated by clients. For us, the down talks about an action orientation or not. So is he down and out? Can he not get himself moving? Does he feel like he's pinned down? I'm going to watch for these kind of metaphors that he speaks from to see if the depression is holding him still in in his initiatives and inspiration. It might not be the same, but this idea of him getting himself going there. But then the depressed, down and depressed, goes to me to the, the feeling level of confusion, chaos, maybe lack of orientation in the world. Does his once-oriented sense of life seem disrupted now, or is he telling us that he never did feel oriented and he's he's back and confused? And so I, I want to see, especially in regard to this life task, the one of the big three, my love life, can kind of refer to these, my friendships or my others in life, uh, and my work area. I, I want to see how this down and depressed feeling is impacting him in that regard. What might be the purpose of such moods? And I think that's typical Adlerian. Intentionality is not the same as deliberation, although it's used that way today. He did it intentionally, like he thought it through. That's not at all what we would mean, but he has an intentionality that uh, his whole psyche is oriented toward a movement, to aiming towards something. And, and this is what we're going to be seeking out. And we can look at that, at least get a first beat on that by asking who is most affected. Here comes the life task. Is it his friends? Is it his workplace? Now, and is that why he got laid off? It would be a question. Or is it his wife and children? Who's being impacted by this? Okay. Third, uh, he is not feeling suicidal, although he says he wouldn't mind if he were to get in an accident. I agree with Ken. It seems like a passive death wish of some sort. Does that mean he's endorsing his possible demise to others? That is, I won't be responsible for it. It'll happen accidentally. Now, that would bring forward an existential thing. And it might still say something already about his belief in God or the hereafter, something broader. He doesn't want to do it himself. Most Christian denominations, I don't know if all religions, but the, the prophetic ones, Abraham and his, uh, pardon me, the Muslim, Islamic, Judaism, and Christianity would say, no, 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 you don't take your own life. Um, so he might be hedging a bet on such a thing, but this, you know, it might be a valid expression of this depression. Does John have early any memories in this regard? Might they be related to loss or danger of loss or privilege and status? As he doesn't know what to do when he gets booted. And, and his recollections could show that. Um, booted from a job, in this case. What does he remember about being sick as a youngster and the care that was uh, forthcoming? That's curious to me because he might, I don't know, he's been uh, unemployed for six months. Is he looking or not? Is he expecting someone to reach out to him? Does he have friends at work? Is his wife doing it for him? Those kind of things. So I'm looking, looking, looking for his activity level here, because that we're going to have to hook on to to get him moving and inspired again. I like that word. Excuse me, can I? If I'm using it improperly, you can tell. Number four, he says he was raised Catholic, 
but as of four years ago, no longer practices religion and no longer knows whether he whether or not he believes in God. Now, I took this from a literal sense. It counted four years ago. We were at the beginning of the pandemic. So I, I use that as kind of a framing my, my mind here. What does John mean by no longer practices? Have he and his partner uh, stopped attending mass when COVID struck? You know, we were all sequestered. This was a big issue with uh, many of the congregational churches and like. Um, was he involved in other practices at the time? Was he in teaching catechism to the kids or marriage enrichment? You know, they have those kind of things available if it's an involved uh, religious stance. Or was his involvement prefunctory, a connection that suffered when the attendance, which is all he did, was taken away from him? That's what I, that's my question. Because that would tell me how involved he was and what a resource his God might be to him. What was the place of God in his life before the doubts arose? And what does his not believing in God change in his life? I imagine it does, or it wouldn't have come up in the first statement, you know, that uh, this is a, an issue for him. So maybe something has changed. I don't know if there's been an affair because the wife doesn't see him as masculine enough. Who knows? If it was a wife, we don't know that for sure. Five, John mentions he has vivid dreams, including a recurring dream of being buried alive. Okay. Um, I hope you can see the approach that Adler would take in this regard. Does John dream frequently? What are the intervals? Do his dreams puzzle him or are they clear to him? Is he aware of his awakening emotional state? That's the main thing that Adler pointed at us to. And the idea of not remembering dreams isn't a problem. It's because they're, he, Adler suggested that the dreams are mainly to gather the energy needed to attack what problems you see in the waking dawn. Or early recollections give us kind of a shot over the bow of how life looks to us. Dreams, we tend to see is more anchored in the here and now. So what are, what, what does he wake up to? Is it horror? Is it panic? Is it calm and peaceful? We, we don't know yet. We need to look in that. How might John see a solution to his difficulties by burying himself on such a regular basis? Now, this is a little punch with Adler, and, and it wouldn't be asked in any way to, uh, to make him feel uncomfortable. But we would eventually ask, it's his dream, we would say. And, and where it comes from, we would say the lifestyle, generally. It's it's patterned way of looking. And he doesn't know what else to do besides bury himself. And what? I don't know what he's doing in there, you know. Um, but he does it quite regularly. And see that periodicity of the dreaming, I would ask, did it come after fights with his wife? Did it come after fights with his colleagues at work? He didn't like the job anyway, you know. So I, I want to see if there was a connection there. What associations does he make with his own burial? What purpose might be served by being buried before he dies at his own hands or by accident? See, this issue of accidental death might come up again. Was he part of the burial service or not? Does he feel buried by work, by expectations, by obligations in something? I was just trying to find a metaphor there. 
What emotions does he awaken to? I mentioned this. Okay. Um, now, the vividness is an interesting catch-all for me because um, more like the neurolinguistics programming people, we would see uh, not exactly personality types, but the one who is more visual or more oral or or things like that. And I'm wondering what John is in such a regard. What do we mean by vivid? Is it visual? Is it auditory? Here's the noises. He can he knows who's uh, performing like olfactory, etc. Uh, did John favor one or more of these in his childhood? That's that's what I'm going to be interested in. Just a couple more here. Thanks for your patience. Uh, he is currently out of work after being laid off six months ago from a job he didn't really enjoy anyways. Was this his first layoff? I don't know. How does this fit in the pattern of his life? What is his record of layoffs and returns? Is, is there such that we could look at over the last several years? What is his awareness of his level of responsibility for these layoffs? Is it the dirty administration or these creepy people he works with? Or does he flagellate himself and say, it's me, I just can't hold a job? Or or he's just generally puzzled. I don't know why they laid me off. To which I would ask, how might you find out? And, and we would, if he hadn't in six months, figured it out. Okay. What initiative has he engaged in concerning the lack of employment? Or was he unengaged and permissive uh, of the management in the decision-making process? Like, did he fight for his job or... Did he just roll over or something in between? What impact has the layoff had on his generally feeling down and depressed? It's not like we don't know if these are directly connected, but certainly one is not helping the other. And I'd like to understand that better. And yeah. And finally, his goals are to understand his depression, get to a place in life where he has some enjoyment again and find a job. That's a so there's an action orientation. He says, anyway, he wants to get a job. All the more important to find out if he's actually been looking or not. Because there could be, and we'll talk about that as shadow or other things that Adlerian's talked about. What is going on here? Okay, my question, what is the level of, what is John's self-awareness level, his introspection and his responsibility taking? How does he define enjoyment? He wants to enjoy life. I'm touched by that because enjoyment isn't used so often. Maybe I want to be happy again is. And I think there's a qualitative difference between the two. And I'd be interested if he sees it that way. Who wants to enjoy life again? Um, does it include engaging in his family? You know, And could he be enjoying himself now because he's got more time at the family? Or is, is there something there that he isn't uh, taking advantage of? Might... Uh, it harkened back to a time when he had fewer obligations, enjoyment, you know, although right now he doesn't seem to be enjoying his time off. So with this information, an assumption of John's discouragement is what we're, we'd be looking for, because that reveals inferiority feeling. And then the counterfiction we look for is uh, with his minus feeling, he's going to be charging mightily for a fictional goal which will take away his feeling of inferiority. And that indeed can be so aggressive that he's got to hide it, you know, in some way from himself, not totally. We don't think this is wholly subconscious, but that he might not pay attention to it. And it could come across as braggadocia or pity me or something like that. 
So that's what we're looking for is this movement that he and I could begin talking about. These constructs would be worked out on in close collaboration, co-thinking we call it, or co-narrating the lifestyle. These will both be recognized in these uh, this style of life and be supported in the patterns of interactions with others. Okay, I was trying to say here they're co-created co in this way. Including uh, another thing I'd, I'd watch for is this obsessive compulsions, which we borrow from, from Freud, I imagine. The idea is what is the pattern that I do so regularly that allows me to feel the way I need to feel in order to employ my myself, my lifestyle to feel better or, or about myself? Because those can be get us nowhere. They just keep me fighting in the mechanism. Uh, or with a little adjustment, sometimes a lot of adjustment, is still the energy and the benefit that he might be able to employ to re-inspire himself. Okay. That, that's... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and with, with, all, uh, with all of that, where, where would you... So you're keeping all of that in mind. You have all these questions in mind. Where would you see yourself going in like the first two or three sessions? Yeah. Um, he would be watching for his uh, um, early recollections, and I, he and I would engage. Probably, I, I would. Now, this isn't all depth ed learnings. I would be curious about the feeling he had in his recollections, which we we garnish, and ask him, "Is anything like that parallel right now?" That's one technique to see. It could reveal something there. The other would be in his dream work, which I think is very helpful in this regard, be to say to uh, find out where the patterns are existing right now. Um, Daniel, I would be very curious, you know, did a dream inspire him to come to depth therapy? Um, and does, where does it impact his life? right now. So I'd like to start getting an understanding of what holds him back and what allows him to go forward. What does he allow himself to go forward? And if I may, we would talk about the encouragement needed in a discouraged state to step forward when he feels ready and if he uh, feels capable of doing so. That's what I'd have to assess in the first three or four sessions. Okay, thank you. Encouragement okay. like that. Dr. James, what do you, uh, when you hear all of that, what do you find? Yeah, what are your thoughts? What sticks out to you? Um, well, quite a lot. Um, first, how organized it is. Um, we tend not to operate in quite that organized manner. Um, and I'm particularly sensitive to that because before I did this work, I was a mathematician. So, um, parts of me are shocked at how I live now. Um, but I am, uh, I, I'm both attracted to the organization, but also um, I would be wary of, and it's not that you would do this, Eric, I'd be wary of using a paradigm to understand him Mm -hmm. rather than allowing 
the 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 configuration of his suffering to emerge mm-hmm. in a i think probably a much slower manner um than that uh the early recollections i was hoping that we talk about that because that's an aspect of of adler's practice that i find particularly uh, exciting and useful probably i don't understand well no probably i don't understand it the way you mm-hmm. would Aaron, but the idea for me of bringing the imagination to early, early history. And when I, I did take courses at our Adler Institute here in the city hmm. um, years ago, um, actually shortly before I started my analyst training, and I was intrigued by the fact that you could ask for early recollections and then maybe six months into the work, you could ask again and get different, a different set of recollections, right. which I found very exciting because for me, that moves it into the realm of yeah. active imagination. What, you know, what's okay. being imagined. Um, I was also struck by, by how adaptive the model is. In other words, we want to help this man adapt to his life. And it's not that Jungians don't think about that, but that wouldn't be what we would lead with. In mm-hmm. fact, if, if that were the issue, you know, how do we get this person to adapt? I wouldn't use Jungian approaches. Mm-hmm. I would probably use more cognitive behavioral approaches myself. Um, but because he came with a dream, you know, the, the dream for me, in addition to what I said, looking at the literalness of the dream, I would also want to look at what are the mythic uh, expressions of this particular dream theme. And mm-hmm. as I looked at the case, two occurred to me. I certainly wouldn't lead with this, but they would be in the back of my mind. One is the uh, Osiris myth. He wasn't really buried alive. He was um, dismembered by his brother and his body parts scattered. But he was awakened by the feminine. Isis, his sister wife, went down the Nile collecting all of his body parts. She put them all together. She couldn't find one part, his phallus, which she constructed. Some versions say of gold, other versions say of wood, and with which she impregnated herself to give birth to their son, Horus. Um, So we have a redemption by the feminine. The The other myth that occurred to me, again, not strictly a burial myth, but it is a myth of going into the underworld alive, and that's the myth of Demeter and Persephone. Mm. Persephone is taken by Hades down into the underworld and asked to be his bride. Um, She consents, and she becomes the queen of the underworld, which, of course, infuriates her mother, who makes the world barren. And everyone is starving. And finally, a plea is made to, uh, I believe, by Hermes, to the gods on Mount Olympus to do something. And so they broker a um, sort of a truce that for six months of the year, Persephone can remain in the underworld with her husband. And those are the months of the year that we would call fall and winter. And then Persephone is permitted to return to her mother uh, for six months of the year 
and Demeter, who's the goddess of vegetation, uh, allows for mm. food to grow in spring and summer. So again, we have the feminine. So, and I did, it's interesting, Eric, you pointed this out. I did presume um, that his marital partner is, is a woman and mm. that I probably wouldn't do that in my office, yeah. but you know, it's, it's the result of 72 years of socialization. Yes. Yes. It's an assumption regardless of how the world is shifting. Um, but either way I'm looking at, and of course, uh, in analytical psychology, the idea that someone who is gendered and identified as a male has to get in touch with the feminine. That's a life task. Similarly, a person who is gendered and identifies as a woman has to get in touch with the masculine. So I also see here that um, the two myths that suggest themselves to me are both myths involving the feminine. So I would want to know definitely what his relationship is like with his wife, but what is his relationship like to his feeling function, to his sensate function? You uh, approach this Eric, when you talked about the modalities of vividness yeah. and preferences. Um, but, you know, where sensation and where is yeah. feeling, both of which are considered uh, feminine attributes alchemically. Mm -hmm. um, one is uh, the element of earth for sensation. The other is element of water for feeling. Um, and see if there's anything else that I have. I don't think so. Um, being raised as Catholic, it's interesting because there's all, I was also raised Catholic, all kinds of, of brands, right? Um, Catholicism has, a, a again, a very strange relationship to the feminine. I believe Jung tended to see this more positively um, than someone who was raised in, in the Catholic Church. Uh, because Jung felt that the elevation of the Blessed Mother to the queen, to queenship of heaven showed that the Catholic Church was bringing the, the feminine element in. I'm not so sanguine about that, but that's, that's more my personal uh, history. However, it, it is true that Catholicism is one brand of Christianity that does at least acknowledge the presence of the feminine in both Marys, well, in, in many different figures, but certainly Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, who may in fact have been a spouse, but certainly was a very close confidant of Jesus. So I would want to know more about his relationship to the feminine and how that might lead to his um, resurrection, not quite, but return from the, the alive burial. May I ask? Yeah. Thank you, Jane, very, very much. Fascinating. Um, can you say a little bit about how you would do that with him? Would you be having discussions about the dreams? Would you lead him in any way? Would he know about those myths? Um, he may not. Uh, but here's, I would use the fact that if people come to see me, they know I'm a Jungian. Yeah. And I do emphasize dreams. Um, in my intake interviews, I asked about, obviously, family, I ask about religious uh, upbringing and current religious status. I ask about uh, whether or not they dream, whether or not they practice a religion. Um, 
in any particular formal way. And I would, after looking at all of the, you know, imagery around being buried alive and the feelings around being buried alive, I would ask, are you aware of any, so I'd get his personal associations, that would be what that is. But then I would say, are you aware of any mythic themes that deal with being buried alive? And this is the, the aspect of dream uh, analysis in, in Jungian psychology that we call amplification. Mm-hmm. And I might talk about some myths that occur to me. I certainly wouldn't do this the first time through, but we tend to continue to return to dreams. Um, but, you know, buried alive is a big deal. I mean, there's works of fiction about being buried alive. Um, there are mythic themes about being buried alive. The central mystery of Christianity is the return to life of the buried Jesus. So, I mean, that is the beginning of Christianity, not Christmas, but um, the Easter experience, which was spoken of in resurrection terminology. So I certainly would look at that as well. Um, is Is this being buried alive? It goes along with the idea of depression from a Jungian perspective. Something is being held in suspension for ultimate return. I mean, if you're buried alive, I suppose you could die, but you're alive. So if we can figure out how to bring you back, that that would be important. Um, if, just like in depression, you're not always going to remain with the psychic energy being drained, eventually it will reform and come back. Um, there was one other. Oh, you were talking about intentionality. The way we would look at intentionality is through what the term that Jung used is telos. So what is the telos of this suffering? Yeah. This man is obviously going through a great deal of suffering. We don't know about the quality of his marriage, but at least his emotional state, his loss of a job, don't know about his friends, he's suffering. And when this much suffering is experienced, we always ask, what is the self doing here? And the self is a particularly enigmatic concept in Jungian psychology. It's very controversial. Um, It's, I believe, one of the reasons why Jungian psychology tends to be rejected in academic circles. Um, Mm -hmm. But the self is is not myself or yourself. It's that place where we're connected to all beings across all space and throughout all time. And the self, there's a certain aspect of fate to it. The suffering that we're in, we look at as the self pulling the person toward future wholeness. Mm-hmm. The term we mm-hmm. use for that is individuation or being undivided. So I would want to look at that. You know, why is he going? And I wouldn't necessarily say that to him because that could be cruel to say, well, why, why do you think this is happening to you? Yeah. I, I wouldn't be coming here if I knew, you know. Um, but that would be in the back of my mind. What is being what is he being called to? So in addition to the causal factors, I would want to know what is the teleologic, the, the um, initial cause, the efficient cause, the, you know, causes in the past. I would also want to know what teleological cause um, is, what final cause, exactly, is he being drawn to? Mm-hmm. And of course, the final cause is fullness, but along the way, what is this suffering uh, attempting to draw him toward?
Mrs. Lilly. May I respond? Howard, you'd like to share a bit? Is that all right, Daniel? Um, so you just mentioned here at the end, Helios, holism, which goes to the undivided piece, which I, I think is a, what we uh, share in common, although we have slightly different outlooks on it. But this, this is very satisfying to me to hear. Adler uh, pointed out early on and got booted for it that rather than look backwards at causes, we have to look forward to where we're going, the Telia. And this is where the fictional final goal comes in mind, yeah. comes into the discussion. And what uh, creates the issue of holism, and I'd like to address a little bit that how holism goes to integration, and there might be individuation, but you'll have to correct me on that. They're, I guess they're not the same term, but they're related, integrating oneself and individuating oneself. Um, a little child, we, all of us, our, our brains come online memory-wise somewhere between our second and third year. Prior to that, it's implicit memories we have because we don't have our hippocampus coding and figuring things out and date stamping, I guess, things like that. I love the brain neurology. I'm certainly not an expert at it. But, um, so a lot can happen in the first two or three years of life that we don't record, but we... We don't record cognitively, but we have it available to us. And Adler pointed to that time as a different interpretation between himself and Jung, as perhaps Jung uh, saw this, or you say, was more generous with the idea of what happened in the implicit period of time, up to and including the collective unconscious, that Adler said, uh, for him and his his understanding of the individual, um, the implicit two or three years was enough. Okay, in essence. But during that time, when I can now remember what's going on, yeah, what's going on, I can also think about how is yesterday compared to today, and I start puzzling through what am I doing here. Or, or how does it work around me? Of course, it's not this, this well-developed. A, a little child in the implicit uh, range is already identifying with mom or the, the caregiver and learning to walk and conquer and, and develop the skill base. But when the memory comes online, they can start thinking about what I'm doing and where I'm going while they simultaneously feel inferior to what's around him. This is not a complex. It's just one of the originating feelings of what gets me up and going. And I think if I'm, uh, if it's a healthy, uh, or, or, yeah, healthy raising pattern, uh, development pattern with the help of the community, I don't have to uh, develop a conquering attitude toward my inferior feeling. But if I am traumatized in my childhood by any number of things that can go on, I probably will look to conquer that because I've got to get in there and fight. This is one of the, okay. Now, what I'm trying to point to is how do I develop that notion of how I get through this unscathed and feeling as little inferiority as I can? 
I think this is what always pushes the individual or pulls the individual more properly. How can I reach that little goal of mine? And that becomes the unifying factor of the that brings the, the individual together in an integrated fashion. That's why Adler spent a lot of time saying we are undividable, individual psychology, individual, can't pull us apart. And this is a, a major distinction between the two uh, theories, of course, that uh, where Jung sees our challenge in midlife to individuate and perhaps all our life long, Adler says the problem is we're already integrated, but we act as if we aren't. And we, we creatively make our way through so that we can um, stay connected when we need to, but assert ourselves when we can. So, so that our, our uh, therapeutic move is to remind people that they're united and that the seemingly disparate activities that are going on are serving a purpose indeed. So that's and and now the the challenge for us both in a gentle way is to explore what purposes might be going on here. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. That's that's that one piece. It kind of brings up those. Areas of commonality. I really appreciate yeah, yeah. hearing that. I don't know if you have a comment on that, Ken, or well, <clears throat> I don't think Jung did very well with uh, pre um, the, the years prior to age three. Uh, mm -hmm. The classical Jungian theory, from my perspective, has no developmental component at all, mm -hmm. and that was actually developed a bit later by a British Jungian called Michael Fordham. Ah. So, um, I mean, if you read what Jung has written about childhood, it's really, uh, I come from a developmental background. So that, you know, I'm very confident in naming that part of Jung's theory as weak. Mm. Um, what uh, Fordham talked about was, it, and here's where the concept of the self comes in. When the infant is born, what we are looking at is pure self. Mm. It is an embodiment of an aspect of the self. And then the ordinary exigencies of extrauterine life place stressors on the newborn and they cause, these are called by Fordham, deintegrative experiences. So if you imagine life in the womb, all of your needs are met. There, mm. you know, you don't experience hunger. You don't it, in a, mm. a normal pregnancy. Yeah. Then you're born, and it's like light and temperature, and I have to eat, and I have to poop, and I have to do all these things, and these experiences are deintegrative, and mm. so that, mm. metaphorically speaking, bits break off from the self, and these deintegrates of the self are what form the mm. archetypes, oh. from Fordham's point of view, um, and then. The reason that's important is the complexes, which you alluded to, form around these archetypes. So a complex is comprised of the unprocessed material from uh, interactions with the outer world that organize around the archetypes and they give rise to the complexes. And it is I'll use the word identification, but actually it's more being overcome by the complexes 
when the ego the ego is itself a complex it's not yeah. structural so and the ego's archetypal core is the self so these complexes come along and they push the ego off its throne and they speak with our mouth and think with our mind and move with our muscles and so there is an identification with the complex and so part of the work is becoming aware of complexes and how they are activated and what thoughts feelings and behaviors an activated complex um condemns me to perform mm. and so that we we work to get the ego to develop a relationship with the complexes so what jung would say is that we are not individuals we're individuals we are divided yeah yeah and that the individuation process which is very relational is about getting all of these it's kind of like snow white and the seven dwarfs i have to identify what they are and then i have to work with them we don't get rid of complexes mm -hmm. but we bring them together and the ego develops an early warning system mm -hmm. And yeah, go ahead. Well, this is nice about the the ego. Um, I agree. Did I understand you say the ego is non-structural? It is not a structural part of psyche. Yeah, that's one difference. Um, I'm very aware that Jung's on this side, uh, Adler's on that side, and you have a picture of Freud behind you, Daniel. So <laughs> we're we're sort of uh, yeah. uh, yes. The ego is a complex. But in this, uh, Adler may be closer than than you think or we think, because he also cited as non-structural, and he he struggled in his career to come up with this term style of living. Oh yeah, which he borrowed from Max Weber in the end, which was who was applying it to more communities. But uh, Adler said each individual also has a style of living, and uh, he he interchanged the idea of ego and style of living, but he considered them both uh, malleable and, and, and not structural. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that the rigidity of the style of life is the repetition with which we do the, the, the habits we have formed. And those are structured around moving us toward our fictional goal, which is not remembered as a... Uh, it's an actual memory. It's not. It's a projection of how I think the world is supposed to work for us. And in doing that, um, the uh, in moving toward my goal, I can keep people out <laughs> or I can let people in. And the society around us, the Gemeinschaft, if you I know you shared a little bit of the discussion about it, is the second component that, that plays into Adler's movement style says we move from minus to plus generally. Now, that's not a directional thing. It's from a feeling point of view. And and the movement is an impulse and the energy and the aggression that Adler used to talk about. It gets its direction from the sense of feeling in community with other people. Mas or menos, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the more we feel connected, the more we go toward the community and feel safe within the community and cooperate with it and contribute to it and receive from it. This is, and that is, you use a term for that. That's uh, adaptation of a, of a sense, you know, 
Yeah. But Adler would never say, just in case it comes up, would never say you adapt to any given society. In fact, we have to have rebels so that we don't settle for a, a given mm -hmm. form of our human life, but that we're always advancing toward including more and more of, of our fellow in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the role of the other um, for Jung, you know, clearly relationships are valued, um, mm -hmm. but the, the, the cohort that we are um, living with, experiencing together, also form an opportunity for us to learn more about the unconscious through projection so that connections and well connections of all sorts either connections of love or friendship or connections of enmity are uh, actually functions of projection mm. and it's moving you know falling in love is mutual projection but it's also necessary. If that hadn't happened, none of us probably would be here, right? So the key is to recognize, I have to work to pull the projection back to see who is there. And that is what allows for real relationship. Hmm. So working on oneself is actually working toward and for the other. Is that you wanted to comment on community feeling and relation to the shadow and the anima or animus is that what yes. we're seeing at now yeah 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 because if we look at shadow and anima animus which are undergoing a lot of change in this era of a kind of a, a, a deeper understanding of what we mean by gender and sexuality uh mm -hmm. jung died in uh 61 so you know we have to cut him some slack when he wrote about anima and animus and when he wrote about shadow, they were very gendered. And we don't think that way anymore. And I prefer to look at them as two forces. The shadow is that which repels me and the anima or animus is that which attracts me. And so the ego is sort of suspended between attraction and repulsion. We seek to reduce that tension through projection and other things too, displacement and blah, 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 but we didn't need to go, go through that. But then gradually, as I withdraw the projections, and this is the hard part, because it means I have to admit, this isn't the person I married. Of course, they never were. We were each carrying one another's projections. And uh, I need to think twice about the ones that I label my enemy, because I'm having them carry parts of myself that I do not admit in, right? Because the shadow exists in polarity with another uh, sort of category that Jung calls the persona. So as I develop a particular persona, certain qualities that don't fit are thrown into shadow, but psyche is always wanting us to come to consciousness. So we project that and, and that's how we get enemies. And navigating the persona, navigating shadow and anima animus through our projection of those things in the world actually can bring more of what I understand to mean, which is a kind of um, a being in community or being in society hmm. in a way that enriches both myself and 
the collective of which I am a part. Yeah, well said. I, I appreciate that clarification because it, it sounded initially, and, and I'll go back uh, to try to straighten this out, that the first movement toward the other is my projection of myself on them. And therefore, when I clarify that, I know more about myself and my unconscious, which sounds a little solipsistic. But I but also know more about them. Yes, yes, that's what I heard in that. Yeah, right. I'd like to share a little bit about anima animus you from an Adlerian perspective. And I think it fits in with the, the uh, dichotomizing or the, the uh, conjoining with the shadow, okay? We'll see. First, Adler got booted because of his giddy crosswise with Freud. And what what uh, that he got crosswise with was the idea of the masculine protest. Freud insisted that the uh, neurosis was sexually bound and influenced and the like. And Adler said that that's altogether possible, but only in a secondary fashion. Even Adler's early writings talked about psychic uh, uh, hermaphroditism, <laughs> okay? Oh. Transgender was kind of the idea, and they were struggling with the actual physiological facts of that and also the psychological facts of that. And I believe um, it, it would have to have been early on, but uh, Jung may have been involved in those, in, in distant writing and stuff like that. But Adler's point was, it's not the penis that the woman envies of man. It's the position the penis might represent. And you mentioned this earlier in the the golden phallus that, that you know brought forth another god. Mm -hmm. You know, he said it was the status that is given here that has always and forever pushed women down and said you are a second class citizen. Just do the things that we insist on. Now. I correct myself. It wasn't always in forever. Adler understood from uh, Bacon and some others that had been writing that um, there may have been a primordial female hierarchy. But the Fertings, who were a German couple who were related to Adler, they said it probably went back and forth. If you if you look back at the structures of history and the writings and like that, sometimes women dominated, sometimes men. But eventually, men got in charge. But this is, at any rate, what Adler was trying to structure is saying, if we continue to denigrate women, we can't come to a full equal community that welcomes everyone everywhere at all times. That's the mindset. It knows no limits. And it's the one thing that Adler said, was very careful about over-pronouncing things. It's the only thing you can't have too much of is the mindset which is a sense in me that I belong here. That these problems are my problems, are our problems. And I need you to help me solve these problems. And in that way, Ken, it seems to me, um, Adler's joining of man and woman is not so much psychically. He would say something like this. I know it's not directly from Adler, but the role of a man is to develop himself to his utmost in such a way that he senses that he can contribute to the community according to his talent. And the role of the woman 
identical, identical. But she will do it in different ways, you know. Some of those may be temperamental. Some of them might be uh, structured, perhaps. But we mustn't look to any structures to limit the person, but to allow them to contribute as fully as they can because we need people. And when was it ever more evident we need more people collaborating on things today? Yeah. Not taking their own assignments or being certainly not hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine, but also saying those those terms are a little superfluous, you know? And and this is quite controversial. I, I hope I, I don't turn anyone off by it, but in, in, in today's movement of, of uh, gender uh, inquisitiveness and trying to figure out what is gender, Adler always said it's a, it's a community construct, you know, it's a social construct. Our sex is something else, but because they typically can be identified, but now we have an increasing number of uh, ambiguous genitalia and the like, and that gives rise to what might be, which could be unnecessary confusions if we were respecting everyone for their contribution and what they wanted to do rather than what they ought to be doing and what God intended for them and this and that. So I, I hope that. No, I, that fits when you were talked about, I did not know uh, this aspect of Adler's uh, work mm -hmm. at all. And when you use the term psychic hermaphroditism, mm -hmm. um, I was immediately thrown to, you know, Jung relied on alchemy, uh, especially in the latter part of his life. He worked on it throughout his life, but interestingly enough, he didn't publish his work on um, alchemy until after Freud's death, which always intrigued me. Um, but uh, in his um, essay, Psychology of the Transference, Jung likens the analytic relationship and the process of analysis to uh, a series of medieval alchemical woodcuts called the Rosarium Philosophorum. And they are a series of 20. Jung only used the first 10, but they, he demonstrates how each of the images shows different stages in the analytic process. Mm. And the final woodcut he used shows a picture of a hermaphrodite mm. as the completion yeah. of the work. So the so, images begin very polarized in a, in a gender mm. manner. And then there's a lot of mingling and, and, and the emergence eventually is of this synthesized figure. Um, and like you, I wish that these these theoretical motifs could be brought forth. Uh, but I feel that the field of psychology is not interested. Um, the field is, you know, Western psychology. But I knew Jung, and now what you're telling me about Adler, um, we need psychologies that deal head on with the notion of androgyny, hermaphroditism, the the commingling of the masculine and the feminine, whatever, whatever that means. As far as I know, Jung did not though write about gender as a social construct. Mm. I I I'm kind of going out on a limb because I yeah. don't know. I haven't done my own research in that area. 
but that's particularly exciting to know. In my young studies, I, I was uh, trained as a drycursion, which was Adler's major uh, uh, disciple, at least in the Americas and the like. Well, well, the challenge. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 In the, I am uh, tickled by this factoid that you are sitting in Chicago, the, the seat of Adler in America, and I'm over in Switzerland. I know. I know. I thought, you're in the Holy Land. What in the world? <laughs> Same thing. But this uh, androgynous, when I, in my early studies, we use that as a term of balance and, and good strength. And uh, it was a, a description of a man or a woman who had found a way to appreciate the other sex, Adler never used the opposite sex. He said the other sex, not the movement in the direction of saying there's variety here, you know, and that is not the most important part. It's only it wouldn't say just just incidental, but it's far less important uh, than how we present to work out the challenges that face us daily in life, you know, and they don't go away. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 and we need each other to scope these out and to understand them and to have different perspectives like you're sharing today so we can rethink yeah, yeah. and reapproach and reapply but yeah they are always in kind of a practical way I, I i would say you know because it's the practical not that it's any faster or, or whatever but that uh the suffering individual is what he wanted to help people overcome you know, that uh, we are the authors of ourselves and our personalities, our lifestyles, both the author and the artist, he said, the artist and the, and the artwork. Mm -hmm. And if we can learn that, all of us, we can help one another undo our suffering. Uh, uh, you know, without, yeah, um, just leave it there. Yeah, I want to... Um... So we have about 25, 30 minutes left. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Monsager, I know you mentioned you might have, you wanted to talk on the collective unconscious from an Adlerian point of view. I don't know that I've heard that been yeah. brought up distinctly yet. Um, and then I know that we wanted to talk about Adlerian training as well. So maybe, sure. yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did make a passing reference to it, and that was that... Uh, Adler felt that the, this uh, implicit period when kids are taking in so much information, which now Adler made a nod to, but we now know that the uh, the bonding and attachment experience takes place also within that time period, probably the first uh, 10 or 12 months that's going on. And so there's a lot of psychic energy going into this, you know, with, uh, and, and, and the neurology being formed and, and the like. Um, and he felt, that, I just said it already, that, that Jung elaborate, elaborated more than he had to. Adler was all for parsimony, you know. Let me, let's get down to what we know we can deal with and change. It doesn't mean it's right. It just means it works, you know. We don't need to elaborate uh, too much. It takes us a field of the singular focus of caring for one another and caring for the world we're in. You know, so that that was that. Yeah, Jung was not parsimonious. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, I, I ran across a, a comment by Adler in one of his case studies back in 1916. I'll just share it very briefly because he brought in uh, maybe a provocative point. He was dealing with a man who came to him because he couldn't seem to sustain a, a intimate relationship. He had been engaged to a very competent woman, a very beautiful woman, he reported to Adler, but her education wasn't quite what it probably could be, so he really encouraged her to get a good education and evidently kind of badgered her into this uh, at a time when education for women wasn't all that popular. She was going for it, but she became totally overwhelmed, had a breakdown, and we don't know much about her, but he broke it off. That was it. He couldn't handle this woman who could not handle this kind of pressure. Now, he had a mother who was very dominant in his life. And Adler, this is a, you know, shortening it quite a bit. Adler said, this man showed uh, attitude and evidence toward wanting to defeat many women in his environment. And what he feared most was possibly being wed to a woman that he could not escape and her dominating him like his mother did. Hmm. Um, and so he arranged, that is intentionally, but not deliberately, his intention was to sack this woman so that he could say, I was engaged one time. She broke my heart because she couldn't meet my expectations. And don't ask me again about marrying. I, that was his re resolution of the life task, okay? Hmm. Now in passing, Adler says, Ford would have look at, looked at this not only as a love relationship between, uh, a, a strange love relationship between mother and son in some kind of Oedipal uh, manner or, or the like, um, but this was also a narcissistic construct in the early mention of narcissism, not what it has become so well-defined today, but that it was, all about me, had nothing to do with her. And Jung would have called him an introvert. That's what he said. Jung would have seen typologically an introvert because he didn't go out toward people. He kept it to himself and kind of managed it in a passive way behind the scenes. Not adequate. I mean, there, there isn't a whole lot said there. It would have been lovely to, you know, pick Adler's thoughts about that. But it, it brings in typology also, which is something that, you know, Dan had said we might talk about so. Well, yeah, that's interesting because um, I mean the, that man you described may well have been an introvert, but that would have been hmm. um, relevant to how he resolved yeah. his life task. But um, it is interesting that Jung's book on typology it was spurred by his puzzlement. Mm. about the differences that had arisen between him and Freud and Adler. Oh. And so the first several chapters of uh, volume six of the collected works takes a look at um, Freud and Adler from a typological perspective. Mm. And um, because Jung, I think Jung was puzzled that here were these people, these these three people, all of whom were very dedicated, apparently to the same yeah. um, 
goal, but they fell afoul of one another. Um, certainly fell afoul of Freud. Yeah, uh, fell, yes, that's right. well said, um, more accurately. <laughs> and I think Jung tried to understand all of that from a typological perspective, um, including introversion and extroversion, but sensation, thinking, feeling, and yeah. intuition. So it is interesting that to hear yeah. Adler making that reference, because it, it just strikes me that they both knew they were trying to describe the same territory. Exactly. Yeah. But their personal psychologies were very different, and their personal psychologies would have an impact on that. No. Um, the. Uh, I don't remember the author now, unfortunately, but we have uh, a very interesting journal article on the early recollections of Freud, Adler, and Jung, and to see how their personalities come forward in those. So I'll, I'll be sure to send that, and maybe Daniel can post it. <laughs> with yeah, me. yeah, that would be great. And, and I've got the collected works of all the triumvirate here, and I'll go go to chapter or volume six. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. very interesting to see how he portrays Adler. Yes, Adler was very criticized because he believed in the individuum. <laughs> right. But right. Uh, I'll just say very briefly, Adler saw the main components being the the movement, the striving, and then the level of social interest. And so his typology would be, if you put it, uh, movement from lower to higher would be this way. What is the striving capacity? Yeah. Activity level probably better understood. And what is the high and low of social interest? So you have a low, low, a low social interest, high activity, criminality, possibly, a high social interest, high activity, which would be the uh, socially interested type. And then you have high social interest and low activity, which would be uh, similar to the to this ideal type, with one who teaches or quietly philosophizes. Uh, Kant was probably in that, was afraid of his shadow in many ways, but what a great contribution he made to the world without, you know, making a splash. So that's what generally, and he also coordinated them with the, the, the humors, phlegmatic and, and the like, you know, very interesting. Sanguine was a socially interested one. And, yeah. But he didn't mean to do that seriously as much as he was saying, uh, ancient humanity was after the same thing we are, trying to understand ourselves, trying to see how we vary and differ from one another. Yeah. Uh, although he says the, the point would be to see what, what are our similarities, you know, and to the degree that we're missing the sense of social contact with one another and the importance of that, uh, Adler's somewhat well, uh, energetically said, that's really what we have to be paying attention to. <laughs> <laughs> and what got him so, I think, upset with Freud in the early days as Adler was seeing the importance of, at the time, the socialist state and the like, that mm. uh, he couldn't catch Freud's support for that, you know? Yeah. And started to weigh on their relationship until it finally broke. So, yeah, there seems to be a trail. Yeah. Left in Freud's wake, yeah. Jung had a quaternity as well, but it would in typology. Mm. The, the horizontal would be 
uh, data gathering, and that would be mm. sensation or intuition, yeah. and they exist on a continuum, and the vertical would be uh, data evaluating, so thinking and feeling. So those are mm. the four functions. Introversion and extroversion are considered attitudes, I... and they had more to do for Jung with how psychic energy gets replenished. So if we're a finite open system, we have to find a way to replenish. The introvert replenishes by going within, so not with large groups. Mm. The extrovert needs a larger community to regenerate, to re-energize. Mm. But those are more attitudes toward uh, how to sustain the psychic system. And then data gathering and data evaluation are the that's wonderful functions. Yeah, that's, that's it, it, yeah in teaching. Yeah, it becomes uh, typology seems to be eclipsing what I believe are much more. Um, uh, I'm going to draw a lot of flack for this. Much more dynamic aspects of the theory, not because Jung's writings on typology were were problematic they weren't they were a dynamism like how can i understand you and mm -hmm. you know how are you experiencing the world how are you constructing the world that's really what what he wanted to know how did yeah. adler and freud construct the world in a way that was so different than mine that we couldn't yeah. we were living in different worlds but now it's become like a shorthand oh you're an introverted sensate or you're an extroverted thinker that you know uh, that's like saying you're a libra <laughs> yeah, you? I don't, it doesn't tell me anything. It might give me a global picture, but yeah. we've had the same thing. How in the Adlerians on uh, birth order, you know, you're a firstborn, you're a, the baby of the family, you're an only child, which b became unfortunately caricaturistic in its application, which goes to the training issues, actually. Yes, but Adler never intended that to be a typology. You know, Interesting. You know yeah. culturally, the, the general impact on people. And he says, as always, the only point of a typology is to get me in the right ball field. You know, am I playing football? Am I playing rugby? Am I playing baseball? What am I playing here? Thank you. Now I can start to use those tools to understand my team members mm -hmm. and the like. But, uh, I mean, birth order is is very helpful as a as a first guess because Adler is all about guessing. The stochastic method was let me think. What would it be like if I were in their position? Yeah. What what might they be going after? Because this result intention always brings a quasi result that is mm -hmm. close to what I wanted, but not a perfect endpoint. Right. So I can I can guess these things with couple interaction, with family dynamics, with individual. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be an individual with themselves so much as it would be fighting the task and not being able to accomplish a contribution yeah. or a love life or a, a, a friendship dynamic. Yeah. I never thought about it as stochastic, but I think Jung's methodology is similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't you don't come in going, well, I'm dealing with Aphrodite. You know, you, you, you kind of wonder about you know what what's the archetypal ground yeah. of suffering and I'm am I aware of any myths that could amplify that archetypal ground mm -hmm. and does it get me anywhere yeah. you know and it's yeah. not a matter of 
characters. It's a matter of the 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 mythos itself. You know, yeah. if someone, let's say, is stuck in a Sisyphus kind of, you know, I keep doing the same thing and have to do it again, and I never get the result I want. Compulsion. That's yeah. Okay, who <laughs> condemned you? So, what character can we look at in your life that? figuratively speaking, condemned you to this because Sisyphus was being punished. And so looking at it mythically expands the, the ability to speculate on what are the forces this person has to contend with. That's fascinating. Yeah. How can we overcome them or how can we make yeah. peace with them? I imagine that would be a, an excellent approach that an Adlerian could, could use, you know, oh, when they see the person always creating the same fight with the boss or the wife or right, the right. partner what? or the child, you know, and dominating them. Right. Who condemned you to this would be right. an interesting question. Right. right. What myth <laughs> are you caught in? Yeah. yeah. You know, Jung used to say, we want to look toward, um, you know, the underlying mythos because what we're not conscious of, we meet as fate. And you know, how can we break out of that? What, what I would add, if I may, in using such a, a, a technique, would be uh, our attention to how this condemnation, in this sense, uh, is serving the person mm -hmm. striving for the high goal, you know? That's that. So we'd, we'd be using it in a, what I, whatever that is, utilitarian kind of manner, you know, how can we help see what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. And we wouldn't see it just in that. I, I'm, I'm sorry to, I don't mean to minimize it at all. Oh, you know, yeah. 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 A rich way of trying to start the talk. Cause I, I, I wanted to refer to this. Um, <laughs> um, I don't feel organized all the time, Ken, but when you, you identified what I did as, as organized, <laughs> of the appreciative, but then wanted to say um, the organization of itself. Uh, I mean, we often do the analysis. We, we do it in conjunction with our colleagues. And when we share the recollections or this information I, I mentioned at the front end, their schooling and mm. stuff like that, we all pitch in. It's guessing, 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 guessing. And if these ones contradict one another and don't get into an answer, that's okay. We let them go. Stochastic. And now we guess, 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 guess. It's it's a yeah. very dynamic understanding of what's going on, and, and a really fun, you know, and stimulating uh, interaction when yeah. we do, uh, yeah, team supervisions and stuff like that. Well, you had me at seven, Eric, when you said, <laughs> you know, here are the seven areas we look at. I thought, oh, he's got a list. I love this. All right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I know that in practice. It wouldn't be. <laughs> I, I did. I knew when I was in Chicago myself, David Dalrymple, mm -hmm. blessed memory, and and uh, because he he was one of the organizers of the accreditation process. Yes, yeah, yeah. For both Jung and Freud, and he was doing his level best to get the Adler School involved at that time. Yeah. It was always a battle because there were some that were very keen to it and others that wouldn't touch it because it smelled of Freud or something like that. I don't know. Or something. Yeah. Um, but the Adler School or university now is, is a degree granting institute like any other. And they, they have uh, 
re relatively limited amount of Adler himself, but they do have a certificate in that area, an advanced certificate. The group I'm uh, associated with call ourselves Adlerian depth psychotherapy. Okay. And and uh, the training is called classical Adlerian. So he went, uh, Henry Stein was a, is, I beg your pardon, he's still alive and well, uh, or well enough, you know, he's a, a, one of our ancients, if I can say that. And his uh, mentor was Sophia DeVries, and she was a student of Adler's, much like Dreikers was a student of Adler's. So there's different schools. Dreikers, whom I mentioned before, developed a very cognitive approach, and a very effective one with families and schoolrooms, classrooms. DeVries is more concerned with the larger family and the individual and how deep we could go. So our, at any rate, that's where our roots lie. But we have a program that covers roughly four years of about nine months a year, if you were to count how many uh, courses you can take during the years. There's about 30 courses, and you can get, you know, several of those done a year. And it's a distance training. So the tape material, 30 hours per course is sent, and one hour a week is uh, spent um, in conjunction with your, your mentor. And and so in that sense, it, we don't have an evaluative process right now, although we here in uh, in Europe are going for uh, accreditation by the uh, International Counseling and Psychotherapy Group. So we will have uh, probably a paper to complete. And as, as with me, uh, when I was doing my doctoral studies, we had to get published. That was a threat. But we had to get published with our dissertation. And we'll probably do something like that because there's a lot to be contributed uh, in the Adlerian realm. But it covers theory. It covers the modalities, these 30 courses. Uh, it covers uh, the use and how you do psychoanalytic training. Um, there are several courses where you start with your mentor's cases and you analyze them, and the mentor can be there to guide, not in a corrective way as much as it is in a fuller way. You know, we move into then the uh, the group. We have a small community, and we look at their uh, lifestyle analyses and their work with their clients, and eventually the individual uh, Adlerian depth psycho psychotherapy student um, has theirs because. They have to be master or doctor's level when they come into the specialized training, or just an mm -hmm. adjunct in that sense. But uh, what we're what we hold most to is this mentorship. You know, each of us who have been around a long time then take students either one on one for a a year or two, or perhaps perhaps the whole training. It's either way through, and then they have to do training analysis, which would be with another one of our training. Uh, training analyst, you know, one of our teachers. So, so that you have to have at least one of your four years that are fully engaged with training analysis. We recommend two, and our practice is it goes on even beyond yeah. uh, your certification. You know, this becomes a keeping your lifestyle uh, diminished or flexible. We would say mm -hmm. the lifestyle itself is a patterned uh engagement with the world that keeps our faith so to speak but the engagement with the world 
needs to be fluid and active and, and ready. So we try to diminish this uh, hold on the fictional goal and and contextualize our inferiority feelings again and say we can interact and be helpful by not thinking so much of our own self, finding us at peace with our, our world and our activity. I don't know if you have any direct questions about training, but that's kind of a... No, it. I was thinking about ways in which the training mirrored ours. We have um, people have to finish, well, used to be finish an analysis before you begin and then start a new analysis when you enter okay. training. Um, now they've changed it to a certain number of hours. Um, mm -hmm. And we were encouraged to have two uh, personal analyses, one with a man and one with a woman, oh. and then control analysis, which is part of training. It would be what you would call the training analysis. And that would go simultaneous with the personal analysis, but that would deal with um, uh, sort of the complexes that get stirred up in your work with analysands and mm. focus on transference and counter-transference type issues and issues of frame. Um, and it is evaluative. So it's evaluative, it seems like all the time, but to get in. And then uh, there's a big sort of midway evaluation that we call the propedeutica exam, which um, verifies that the person is grounded in Jung's theory so that under close scrutiny and supervision, they can practice. And then the remainder of the training is called the control training period. And that's mm -hmm. where they're in control and they're in supervision the whole time. Yeah. But the control yeah. analysis is a little bit different. It focuses particularly on um, what is coming up in the individual around the cases that have come to them. And then at mm -hmm. the end, there is uh, people formally present two cases and they're evaluated on those and a thesis and they're evaluated on that. So excellent. And we coordinate that with um, someone, we have to have at least one examiner per exam that comes from outside of the individual society. Mm. So yeah. in my case, it would be the Chicago Society. So we would draw people from yeah. Zurich or different mm -hmm. places in the United States or Europe. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Our, our ICPC accreditation is going to, we're going to shoulder some of that stuff too, making the value to process like yeah. Do you publish or are, are the are the theses available somehow? Theses are available, right? Yeah. Um, depending on, most of the theses eventually get published in one form or another. Mm. Um, but some of the theses are more personal in nature or deal so closely with case material that had relevance for a particular theoretical development sure. that a candidate wanted to make, that those are usually kept a little bit more tightly secured. But they can be um, translated, of course, and modified. Yeah. So the point yeah. can get across without too much divulging of personal material. I have a, a final question for me, Ken, is uh, about the modalities themselves. Adler and, and, and his colleagues, Dreikers among them, uh, 
have created a, a field where we do parenting education and we do family therapy different than the parenting education. We do school consultation and teach school interactions. There are schools that used to call it individual education. Mm-hmm. Now, pretty much Montessori. Montessori and Adler are very close together, theoretically. And so those are available. And we do marathon groups uh, as well as this uh, individual and and couple therapy. Right. So it, all of that, and that is part of our training. We've got a, uh-huh. a, a, a course in each of those. Um, but if I understand right, uh, Union is pretty much individual. Is that it is right? right. Yeah. We um, some of us came like I came with with a lot of child experience mm-hmm. uh, as well as as family. So, um, but I just came with that, and that made yeah. me a good referral source of people needed somebody who knew how to deal with kids. There are some initiatives. We're trying to start one in Chicago. Uh, there's a big one in London. Uh, to train people to do child analysis. Ah. I am not aware of any initiatives for family or marriage. Mm-hmm. I do see couples occasionally. Um, yeah. But that, again, is based on my past training, and then I, I move it through a Jungian uh, lens. Yeah. For me, I mean, working with couples, for me, becomes more of an issue of communication. And facilitating that, right? I mean, I certainly don't go and what myth is your wife and what myth is your husband. I don't. I don't do that. Some people may. I don't. And there, there are some things written on uh, couples counseling, but it's not a big. It certainly is not yeah. a, a constitutive part of our training. Right. Mm-hmm. Our aim for for couples therapy generally is to loosen the lifestyle make it more flexible, which allows the person to pursue becoming a better version of themselves, to use the you know, common parlance, and to allow each of them to ad- appreciate that in the other, and to encourage the other to be who they want to be, not become who I want you yeah, to be. Wants you to be. Yeah. That's a real game changer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And 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 once we get the lifestyles understood and see how they interact and get this um, com- obsessive compulsion stuff out of the way, they find themselves generally with a lot of energy to pour in a different direction. You know. Yeah. Roughly, that's that's a very optimistic outlook. But you know, it's it's a tough thing. But I think we have something specific to to share with couples and, and the betterment and the uh, virtuous cycle rather than the. Yeah. vicious one that they come with. No. Oh. Yeah. Dr. James, do you guys do much like group supervision? Can I help Dr. Monsager was talking about getting together and you mean um like among the trainees or among Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There is. Right. We have two uh group supervision options. Our our population of people who are in our program are divided into pre-propodoidicum and post-propodoidicum. And there are two groups, two groups of supervision. And well, there are two group supervision uh, groups and two group processes. Mm-hmm. So they process together. Okay. Because we're very, um, 
concern might be too strong, but we know the importance of having a community of people who have this training mm. because it's it's specialized and it doesn't easily integrate. Mm. You know, most people think we're very odd. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because I suppose we are, but... Um, but it's very important because I think that also is a way to uh, grow the field. The, the thing that I like to tell the people in our program is Jungian psychology doesn't exist anywhere but in all of us. And mm -hmm. if there's any hope for its perpetuation, it's not in books. Mm -hmm. Books are telling us what has happened. But unless this is a living thing, yeah. it's, it's just... Amen to that. Yeah. We have to... We Sorry. We're kind of running over, but thank you both very much for joining us. I'm glad that you guys came together. Um, yes, so am I. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. This was a gift giver. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.